0: good morning everybody welcome to spring break at evergreen so children's pastor kim lawless happens to be in this service and her and i have this little thing that we do i don't know if you've seen the research but you know virtual trips can also be very therapeutic and i am still a kid at heart i don't know all those 19 years of formal education have spring break just ingrained in me like i want a spring break right and but we're all here today that's awesome but that means that some of us haven't gone anywhere and some of us aren't going anywhere and so I want us to take just a minute here at the beginning of the service and I want you to think about where would you go if you could turn and share that with a friend next to you and then we'll come back together Well, Kim and I's favorite place to go is Disneyland. So, you know, just out of the blue, I'll say, hey, let's get in line for Splash Mountain. And she'll say, yeah, and I've got a fast pass for Space Mountain after that. And then we'll go on. And maybe for three minutes, we'll just have this dialogue as though we're already there. And I don't know. It's like a little vacation right in the middle of the day. So I hope you all experienced that as you shared your trips with each other. It's not at all what we're talking about today, right? Spring break. But we are going to be talking about greatness. Um, But really something more than that as well. And I want you to think with me. What makes someone great? What makes someone great in our culture? Is it the number of Twitter followers they have? In some people's eyes, that's true. Is it how famous they are? How well-known? How much they're in the media? I mean, thanks to technology and reality TV we can be famous for being famous in our culture without having any real accomplishments behind our name, right? Is it how much money we make that makes us great? Is it our unique contribution? Is it something that we're the very best at for a moment in time that makes us great? Well, a lot of people considered Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of the united kingdom during a very difficult time during world war ii they consider him a great man but you know he had another view you see he was getting ready to speak and the hall was filled and uh, the man standing next to him a friend said doesn't it just make you feel so good doesn't it thrill you every time you look out and the hall is filled and you're getting ready to speak and he said um well it's flattering he said but whenever i feel that way i always remember that if instead of a political speech being given, I was being hanged, there'd be twice the crowd. He understood something about greatness. <laughs> well, I want you to take a look with me at this very brief video clip that Nike did on greatness. Greatness. Greatness, it's just something we made up. Somehow we've come to believe that greatness is a gift reserved for a chosen few, for prodigies, for superstars. And the rest of us can only stand by watching. You can forget that. Greatness is not some rare DNA strand. It's not some precious thing. Greatness is no more unique to us than breathing. We're all capable of it. All of us. Well, Nike got some things right there. I'm not going to say whether I think they got everything right. Maybe we'll look at what Jesus says and discover that today. But you know, they said greatness, it's not a gift. It's not reserved for a few superstars. It's not a rare DNA strand only found in a few people's DNA. We're all capable of it, all of us. So is it wrong to want to be great at something? We want to take a look today and see how Jesus would answer that question. How he did answer that question in this wonderful dialogue that he has with his disciples. We want to find out what real greatness is and where we can find it according to him. And to do that, we're going to take a look at Luke, the ninth chapter, verses 46 through 50. And I invite you to read along with me. Follow along on the screen or on your device. And Jesus, Luke shares this account of Jesus and his disciples. Beginning in verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Okay, does anyone besides me see the irony in the fact that Jesus' disciples are arguing about who's greatest when Jesus is in the room? Well, he's on the road there with them. I don't know. I think that's kind of like two junior high boys basketball players sitting with LeBron James and arguing over which of them was the greatest basketball player or a couple of novice golfers like Jared and I sitting down with Tiger Woods, and we're busy talking about which one of us is the greatest golfer, right? I mean, I find that humorous. I find it fun that the disciples were having this conversation. Well, this is a story about more than greatness. And so today I wanna, we're going to talk about greatness, but we're also going to talk about this process that Jesus did because we're getting a snapshot of the disciples growing up before our very eyes, as a mom would say. Maturing. Yes, the M word. I'll say it. Maturing before our very eyes. Jared and I, early in our ministry, we had lots of different mentors. And we needed lots of different mentors because, you know, we started pastoring at 23 and what did we know? And we, one of those mentors was Joe Aldrich. He was at that time the president of Multnomah, called Bible College at that time instead of university. And Joe... Shared in one of the sessions that we had with him, he shared this wonderful phrase that Jared and I have repeated to each other very often across our, our years. It's this that maturity is always a return to reality. And I want to say today that Jesus is really good at showing us reality, what's really true. And we have this amazing snapshot of this process that plays out over and over again. As we mature and grow up, just like it did with the disciples, I think you're going to recognize it in your own life. You see, Jesus unmasked them, and then he took a look behind the mask, and then he gave them a reality check. He told them what was really true, and we want to talk about this three-part process, and we want to talk about what he showed them. And the first part is just that Jesus unmasked them. It says, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Now, Mark's account gives a little more description to this that helps us see it that way. You see, they were all walking on the road to Capernaum. And apparently Jesus was far enough in front or far enough in back that they didn't think he was hearing them. So they were having this wonderful discussion about who was the greatest. And Jesus waited, it says in Mark, until they got to the house in Capernaum. And then he turned and asked them, what were you talking about on the road? He loves to ask a question that helps unmask us. And their response was to keep quiet (laughs) because they were arguing about who was greatest. Isn't that kind of like getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar? You know, mom walks in the kitchen and you're sneaking what you weren't supposed to be having. I think that could have been how they felt felt there, but says they were arguing about who was the greatest, and that word arguing is an interesting word because it means to reason thoroughly, to deliberate, to reflect upon something, to discuss, but more than that, to dispute, to actually have some friction, some contention, some strife about it. In fact, in the New Testament, this word is always used with a derogatory connotation, with a negative attached to it. The disciples were discussing and arguing about who was going to be top dog in Jesus' kingdom. They still think that it includes him overthrowing the Roman government, establishing a new world order with him at the top of the pecking order, and them immediately under him. They're still thinking that even though Jesus, in the, just in the previous weeks leading up to this, and just before these words even, has been sharing with them This is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I mean, a lot different picture, but they just don't get that. Jesus unmasked their thoughts. He uncovered, he revealed, he exposed with that one little question, what were you talking about on the road? Do you think the disciples might have felt that way? We call it, you know, feeling naked in front of everyone. I mean, I've I've had that happen to me before. Psalm 139, verses one through four, says it this way, talking about God's omniscience. It says, You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Have you ever had Jesus unmask your thoughts? Strip away or cut through the layer that you put up in front of it and help you see what you're really thinking, what's really going on behind all that. We all are capable of self-deception and of having blind spots. And Jesus is great at showing these to us, at unmasking those. I was 30 years old. I'd like to say I was a lot younger than that. And Jared and I were at, we had just finished uh, six and a half years planting our church and handing it off That's like handing off your baby by the way And we were now on staff with our mentor Roy Hicks Jr. at Faith Center in Eugene And so that was the role out of which we came we, we asked Roy can we go to this first ever how to plant a church conference We kind of had that backwards didn't we plant a church, and six and a half years later, go to the conference on how to do it. But it was still really fun. It was at Fuller Theological Seminary, and there were two keynote speakers, Bob Logan and Carl George. And Bob Logan came on the church planting side of it. First time to meet him, after one of the sessions was out in the sunshine, out in the area where the commons area, and we were talking, and I engaged him in conversation. And as we're talking, I was introducing myself. And as I introduced myself, I made myself sound, I made Jared and I sound more important than we were. Oh, I don't even remember the exact words, but I didn't, I just described what we were doing in more grand terms, all of that. I don't know, I might have even given us a title, I'm not sure if it was, it was self-proclaimed, right? And then my husband came along, and he stood there with me, there in that commons area, and he started talking to Bob too, and Bob started asking him questions, and of course my husband, he didn't do that. He was humble. He was good and shared just exactly what we were doing. And I was just sure that Bob must see it for what it really is, you know. But Bob never commented because he's a good guy. He wouldn't have done that to me. But you see, I'm not even sure he was aware of it. But Jesus unmasked me in that moment. And he did it with this question. He said, you're trying to appear more important than you are. Why? That was a great question that made me see what was in me. That's what we're talking about when, we see, when the disciples were here with Jesus arguing about who's greatest, thinking he's not hearing. You see, maybe it's something you don't want to talk about because you think that it makes you less, so you keep it to yourself. But uncovering what's really behind what I'm saying or thinking or doing, that's Jesus' specialty, it really is. And it often comes in the form of a question. Let me pose a few that he's asked me of before. What are you afraid of? Why does that matter so much to you? Why did you get so easily discouraged by that statement? What do you th- want your kids to care about? What are you really upset about, Ann? Why are you bored? Last month, I was reading in Exodus, and I was reading chapter 37. And these were a few reflections, and and this is where he asked me that question. Why are you bored? The whole chapter I wrote is just a recitation of how the Israelites made the items of worship for the Lord's presence in the tent of meeting, just as God prescribed. It's a record of obedience. And honestly, that can be a little boring to read about. Everything goes well. The objects turn out beautiful, just as prescribed. It's without any drama. And that's when he said, why are you bored with this, Anne? And I put, let's face it, obedience is not sexy. If by sexy, we mean exciting and alluring. As I write that, I think, is that a place where I've been shaped by culture? Is that my fallen Anne expressing itself more than the image of God in me? Because obedience brings peace and blessing and joy and freedom. But have I become, like the culture I'm in, addicted to drama and crisis and excitement and messiness, where even the weather is shared? And I wrote this with overwrought drama and a sense of crisis when there is none. I think we've all experienced that. And so I wrote, I'm catching myself going ho-hum, After a chapter in your story, God, that is filled with people doing the right thing. The slogan, Sin sells" comes to mind. I'm not sure my response captures your hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I confess my attraction to a little bit of bad. A little bit of breaking the rules. I want to wholeheartedly pursue your righteousness without reservations or hanging on to a little bit of bad. Purify my heart, Lord. Well, that was my question. But my question for you is, what question has he asked you lately that's uncovered for you your real intention or motive? Jesus loves us too much to not intervene like he did for these disciples. He unmasks us and he unmasked them so they could experience his life and transformation. He knew where this thinking would take them. And so he inv- intervened in this nook of their life and he is the only one who can see around the corners in my life in the dark recesses of my thoughts and my hiding places and I have to tell you that he doesn't stop there because he goes on just like he is going to do with these disciples and he wants me and he wants them to acknowledge what's behind the mask he takes the mask away and then he takes a look at what's there And what he saw here was this, 12 guys arguing about which of them was going to be the greatest. Jesus interviewed, intervened in them, their lives when their thinking would get them in trouble. Now, they were ambitious. Is ambition wrong? No, it's not really. Ambition by itself is good. Ambition is to have an aim and a goal. It inspires and motivates us to discipline ourselves, to keep going along obedience in the same direction. It's striving towards something and aiming for something and aspiring to something that's bigger than ourselves and beyond ourselves. I have a friend who just posted a A little note that he found that he wrote to himself in the sixth grade his family was moving and as you know for a sixth grader that's not an easy thing and he had three things on it he said here's my three ambitions stay close to god don't let moving get in the way of god and make a good impression on people the question is is this good ambition or is this selfish ambition god's the one who knows the answer to those questions jesus it's his specialty so the bible has a lot of examples of good ambition like i consider this sixth grade ambition colossians 3 23 one of my favorite verses whatever you do work at it with all your heart as for the lord rather than for men or paul's words we make it our ambition to please god we make it our goal to please god or in Philippians, when Paul talks in chapter 3, verse 14, and he says, I press on toward the goal, the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I mean, ambition is good, right? And there's lots of great examples. But do you know the Bible talks about both kinds of ambition? Ambition and selfish ambition. And the difference between ambition and selfish ambition is that one little adjective placed in front of it, selfish. We're talking about a mindset, a way of thinking, and Aristotle defines selfishly ambitious people as people who made themselves appear more important and uh, more uh, equipped and uh, better than others through manipulation, right? But selfish ambition, in its truest sense, and in this biblical word, means to only think about and look out for yourself. Never putting anyone else's thoughts or needs ahead of your own. It's doing and saying whatever it takes to make me look better and be seen better. So I want to do just a brief review with you. It'll be a Cliff Notes version of selfish ambition in the New Testament because I think it motivates us to to welcome Jesus' process of unmasking us and taking a look behind the mask so that our thoughts can be his thoughts. Here's what he says. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20, Paul writes, For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. That is, grown up, mature, fully equipped. And you may find me not as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Hmm. That's quite a list. And selfish ambition is right in the middle of it. You see, selfish ambition is a mark of immaturity. That's what Paul's saying. And then Galatians 5, verses 19 through 20. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition. To which he answers, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, goodness. Wow. What's he saying? Selfish ambition is an expression of... Of the flesh, it is the old man. It was the old Ann coming out. It's not the person led by the Spirit. And then Paul gives us this wonderful use of it in Philippians one verse seventeen, because he's talking about he's in prison writing this letter, and a bunch of guys are out preaching the gospel, but not because they love Jesus, not because they want anybody to know Jesus' story, and accept him as Savior and Lord. They're doing it to torment him because he knows that they don't really love him. And here's what he says, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. What's he saying there? He's telling us that selfish ambition can motivate good behavior. We say it this way, I'm sure your mom taught you this. We can do the right things for the wrong reason, right? That's just what Paul's saying, that happens. So you can't just look at the actions. And it's Jesus that's so good at getting behind what he sees us doing to what the motive is. And that brings us to the final one I'll share. Just out of James 3, verses 14 through 16. He says this, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Wow. I wish it didn't have such strong words about it in the Bible. But it does. And here's what Paul's saying there. If you discover, if God uncovers your mask and you discover that you have selfish ambition, like the disciples did, you know their arguing was a great clue about what kind of ambition was going on there. Just the fact that they had to argue. But if you discover that, fess up. But don't be proud about it Because selfish ambition Is guaranteed trouble In your life So the disciples Were here arguing about this very thing Which of us is going to be the greatest Which of us is going to be top dog In Jesus kingdom And Jesus did not gloss over their thinking He knew where it would lead them So he addressed it Head on with what I'm calling A reality check And here was his reality check He took them, he took this child and put him in front of him. And he told them, the one who is least among you is the greatest. The one who's the least. And these were radical thoughts for the disciples. I'm not sure that can land on our ears the way it landed on their ears. They've got to be scratching their heads trying to figure out what is Jesus' kingdom going to be all about. And he's talking about this suffering in Jerusalem. And now he's identifying with kids instead of kings. They might have expected him to refer to leaders at this time, but he didn't. He brings a little child in their midst. Jesus is turning their thoughts upside down. And right about this time is when John pipes up and says, Hey, Jesus, just want you to know we're keeping the riffraff out. We saw somebody trying to cast out demons in your name, and we told them to stop it because they're not one of us. Well, I'd say that these two things are motivated out of the same thinking, this arguing about greatness and this stopping somebody who isn't one of us, though they're doing the same things. You see, if someone else is doing what I'm doing and greatness is being at the top of the heap, then that's competition. And those people that are not of us are competition, But if I'm a servant, and I find another person who's doing what I'm doing, that's another servant. And the more, the merrier, right? The more, the merrier. So, but if I'm climbing a ladder, and if I'm power hungry, then another person doing what I do is a threat. And these two conversations are coming from the same reasoning. I don't know if you've ever felt threatened by someone. But it always comes from this misunderstanding about what it really means to be great. So what makes someone great if it's not having the top position of power or hierarchy like the disciples were pursuing, being the top dog? Or if it's not the number of followers you have on Twitter or being famous for something or doing something the best in the world at a moment in time? Well, Jesus describes it and Paul tells us how to get there. You see, Jesus tells them, the least are the greatest. You have to keep going down the up escalator, honoring others above ourselves. And Paul tells us how in Philippians 2, verse 3, when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Greatness, Jesus said, is putting others first. So Nike had some things right when they talked about greatness. They really did. It isn't a gift as though we had no responsibility. It is not reserved for a few superstars. It's not a rare DNA strand that's only a few can accomplish. We're all capable of it. All of us with God's help. We don't have to search for it because Jesus showed the way. It's counter to all the cultures, popular notions of greatness. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. And Jesus shows us how. You see, in love, he said no to comfort and yes to suffering. He said no to the power and rights who were, were his as a son of God in heaven and instead came and lived with human limitations. And we celebrated this in communion. He said yes to dying on a cross, and then he rose from the grave to give us victory over death. He showed the way because greatness always starts there first with God. Greatness is a dad that builds a fort with his daughters and they all watch Frozen in it. Greatness is the coworker who gave up her job in the latest downsizing of her company because there was a single mom on her team who had similar skills and she said take her let her have the job not me you see greatness is someone preparing meals for a single dad's daughter because the dad had to work late all that week and wouldn't be home greatness is changing your kids sheets and cleaning them up in the middle of the night when they're barfing when you're barfing too you know, greatness is sitting with somebody as the IV drips those chemo drugs into their arm and veins, or preparing their tea before they arise in the morning, knowing that that's the thing that can help them get the right start on the day because of the side effects. Greatness is those middle-of-the-night feedings by those young moms, and it's the, the midday feedings of the wife who's helping the husband who had a stroke be able to eat. Greatness is faithfully going to work with joy every day, faithfully, day after day, so you can provide for your family. So Jesus, he took this little child and he said, whoever welcomes a little one like this welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. The one who is the least is the greatest. But what I felt like the Lord wanted to emphasize today isn't just that truth. Though it is the truth he was trying to get across to the disciples. What I felt like he was saying is I'm talking to you. I'm unmasking you. I'm asking you to look behind the mask and I want to give you a reality check. Jesus wants to give us more than his perspective on greatness. He wants us to see a process by which we grow up and mature if we'll embrace it. And sometimes we do, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't want to talk about what's behind the mask. Sometimes we don't want to acknowledge what when he's tapping us on the shoulder with what he sees in us. So I don't know if you're a, Toys are Us, I don't want to grow up kind of kid. Or a 21st century Peter Pan. Or a type A driven personality. Or somewhere in between all of those. Jesus wants to continue this process. This process that he started with his disciples then. That he's still doing today with his followers. And he tells us that he comes and sees what only he can see. And he helps us take a look behind the masks in our life. And then he shows us what's the truth and what's the lie. And when we decide to agree with him, that's when we grow up. That's when we mature. When we return to his reality. God's reality. What's really true. Not what we think, but what he thinks. So I invite you to consider with me, where are you in that process today today? Not necessarily about greatness. It might be something else that he's put his finger on in your life. Would you consider these three with me? If it helps you to close your eyes, you can do that. Sometimes it does. The first question is this. Has Jesus unmasked something in your life today or recently? Are you aware? Has Jesus highlighted something in your life that's the thought behind the thought? Psalm 139, that psalm that I Read the first verses of it. It Ends this way with David praying this prayer. Search my heart, O God. Know my thoughts and see if there's any anxious way in me. Any hurtful way in me. A great prayer if Jesus has just unmasked you. And then behind the mask, are you ready today to be honest about what you're really thinking? About what's really going on behind that mask? And the third one is just this reality check. Are you ready to change your mind? It's an old-fashioned quote, but very biblical word, repentance. It's where I change my mind to agree with what God says about what he's uncovered. And when I do that, that's doing a 180-degree turn. That's what it was for these disciples. Instead of thinking about this top dog thing, they had to turn and think about it. No, it's the least. It's what I do on behalf of others, not what I do for myself. According to God, not according to our emotions. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I just want to say thank you for your word that examines us, that cuts, Lord, the very intentions and motives of our heart. And Lord, today we just submit to your process in our life. We want to grow up. And I pray right now, Lord, for anyone here who'd say he's been talking to me about something A way of thinking that's detrimental. And I haven't been listening. I've been ignoring him. And today I just want to say, I'm going to listen to him. And you know what? While your eyes are closed, I just want to ask you, if that's you today, would you just raise your hand to him? Would you just say, Lord, I'm acknowledging right now. I know you've been talking to me. Would you do that with him? And then some of us today, Jesus, behind our mask, We're ready to get honest. I'm ready to call it what you call it, God. And if that's you, would you raise your hand if you're ready to call it what God calls it? Something that he's highlighted in your life. You don't have to make it up. He's pretty good at putting his finger on stuff for me, I know. And then the reality check. Are you ready to change your mind? Are you ready to agree with him and say, yes, Lord, that is what this is. I I see it now for what it is. Boy, Jesus, we're just so grateful for you. So grateful that you can see the nooks and crannies, the corners behind every mask we had ever put up. And that you uncover that, Lord, so that we can have a better life. We can become more like you. We can follow you wholeheartedly. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. With every head bowed, I just want to make opportunity, if there's anyone here that hasn't said yes to the amazing thing that Jesus has done for every single one of us, as I said, He said no to comfort and instead endured suffering. And he did that for us on the cross. And if you want to say yes to him today, if you want to begin that adventure of walking with him, would you just raise your hand? Would you look at me? It's just a chance for us to agree about it. I'm not a special person, no more special than anyone else in this room, but it's a chance for you to acknowledge it. It's a way to really seal the deal with Jesus. So I'm looking across the room. I don't want to miss anyone. Great decision when you make that thank you, Jesus. We're grateful to you. We love you. We anticipate a great week with you of growing up together. In Jesus' name, amen.